Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. A recent survey showed that the reason people are reluctant to go back to the office has nothing to do with COVID, but with their commute. It's not the office they object to. It's getting there, particularly in places like New York, San Francisco, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. Commute times have exploded in recent years. Perhaps when the dust settles, what will have changed the most from a year at home will be less about work and more about how we move around. But will things really change? Will we ever give up our love affair with the automobile? Will a new generation approach transportation in a new way? Are flying cars ever going to be a thing? Will autonomous vehicles unclog the roads or only make them more crowded? And what can we learn from the last great inflection point as we went from the horse to the car? All of this is part of Tom Standage's new book, A Brief History of Motion. Tom Standage is deputy editor of The Economist. He's the author of six previous books of history, including Writing on the Wall and the New York Times bestseller, A History of the World in Six Glasses. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Wired, and he holds degrees in engineering and computer science from Oxford. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Standage here to the program to talk about A Brief History of Motion, from the wheel to the car to what comes next. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. When we think about what comes next, is it more constructive to look back and look at how we got here, or is it more informative to sort of take where we are with the car and kind of look forward, given all the options that we see today? Well, I think we can learn a great deal from what you rightly called the, the previous inflection point, the, the 1890s, because we're sort of in an 1890s situation again. Uh, back then, people had realized that the dominant form of transport, which was horse-drawn um, vehicles, uh, was unsustainable. So in particular, in big, fast-growing cities like London and New York City, the number of horses was going up very rapidly. It was actually going up faster than the number of people. Um, and that was obviously unsustainable. There was also all of this horse manure piling up in the street. And uh, that was, you know, it smelled awful when it rained. Then the whole, you know, it was just, just disgusting to <laughs> deal with. Um, uh, there was a lot of noise because uh, these vehicles had steel ribbed wheels and they were going over cobblestones. Uh, there was a lot of traffic. And um, and so, you know, there, there were all of these consequences. Um, there were also accidents that, you know, horses would would run away or get scared and kick people and so on. So there were all of these sort of problems associated with horses. And it was it was clear that things couldn't go on the way they were. And you might have thought, well, surely railroads made things better. But actually, they made things worse because the faster you can move goods between cities, the more you need to move goods and people around within cities. And in fact, some of the railroad companies were the biggest owners of horses because they needed to have delivery services and taxi services within the, the cities at the ends of their lines. So this was all sort of getting worse and worse. And people were looking around and saying, what can we do? What can we do differently? And I think we're in a similar situation now where we've recognized that the automobile, our dominant form of urban transport, is also unsustainable, that it produces, it may not produce horse manure, but it does produce um, pollution, an invisible form of pollution that has this very bad effect on the climate. Um, we also know that there's lots of traffic. People hate commuting. Uh, it's supposed to be, you know, the most stressful. Uh, it's the thing people hate the most, the most stressful part of their lives for many people. Um, and we also know that there's, you know, lots of uh, deaths on the road. More Americans have died in the first two decades of this century than in all of the wars uh, that America has fought before that. So, I mean, uh, and that's with modern cars with safety features. So it really is an extraordinary death toll that for some reason we just sort of ignore. 
Um, and cars are also still very noisy. We hear horns honking and, and uh, you know, cars going over, over rutted freeways. They, they make a lot of noise. So all of those problems that cars were, were promised to, to fix, because that's what, people, that's what people said in the 1890s. They said, you know, if we use cars, we won't have, we won't have the horse manure. We w- we'll have uh, fast moving traffic. We won't have any traffic jams anymore because cars take up less space because it's, you know, it's basically a horseless carriage. So there's no horse. It takes up half the amount of space. There, w- there won't be any accidents because you can't scare a car. Um, and they'll be much quieter because they have rubber tires. All of those promises turned out not to be true. So I think that's why we should take any promises today about, you know, a single technology that can fix this with a pinch of salt. But I think we could we could also learn a great deal about how we made that fateful decision to go from horse drawn vehicles to to cars uh, and make sure that we don't make some of those same mistakes again. One of the differences seems to be, though, when we were looking at horses and all the problems that went along with them, nobody was really talking about how to make a better horse, how to make a horse that didn't put manure on the street, how to make a horse that, that, that didn't run away. With cars, we seem to be taking this attitude that we can just fix the vehicle. We can make it electric. We can make it quieter. We can make it smaller, etc. It's It's a different approach that we seem to be moving forward with. I suppose so, but if, if you look at what what was actually happening, the um, the horse drawn carriage, the proposal was to was to basically improve the carriage by removing the horse, and that's why early automobiles were, were called horseless carriages. Um, they're only called uh, automobiles and cars uh, later on, uh, sort of ten ten years or so after their invention. Um, but really, that was what people were thinking, and I think we're falling into the same trap now. They were thinking that if you just take the horse away, everything else can can go on as, as it was before, and you sort of fix the problem. And today, with particularly with electric cars, um, you know, it's tempting to think, well, if we just replace the internal combustion engine with an electric motor instead we fix the problem we can go on we can go on just using cars the way we can now there are a few problems with that the first is that um this pollution problem is only solved if you charge the cars using uh, clean electricity so that actually involves a big upgrade to the you know the electricity grid and the generation system but also you don't solve a lot of the other problems we have with cars you don't solve the problem that commuting is horrible that um, you know that you have to sit in traffic that 30 percent of the surface area of, of many u.s cities is devoted to parking uh, that there are all of these road deaths um, and so on. And so I think rather than just saying, let's fix the car by swapping in an electric motor, we need to step back and say, hang on a minute. Why do we need to continue to put up with all that of that other stuff? Shouldn't we looking, be looking a bit more widely at some other options um, and, and looking at a combination of different uh, forms of transport? And what's been really striking about the last 10 or 15 years is that there's been this proliferation of alternatives to owning a car. So ride hailing is the most obvious, but you've also got a greater emphasis on bike lanes and bicycles and electric bikes. And you've got scooters and you've got, you know, all sorts of other crazy things coming like autonomous cars, maybe and flying cars. Who knows? Um, So what I'm really and then, of course, you've still got public transport as well. And public transport has has become a, a lot more attractive because if you can see when the next bus or train is coming using your smartphone, uh, that's much better than just standing around and hoping that something's going to show up soon. So what I'm what I'm proposing is that we uh, we knit together all of these different uh, forms of transport into what I call an Internet of motion. Uh, and we use the smartphone to do this. And you can sort of do this in some parts of the world already. Um, so Google Maps knits together, you know, in many big cities, knits together things. And in some cities like Berlin or Helsinki, you can buy these passes that allow you to use pretty much all modes of transport everything from ferries to scooters to to you know a rental car on the weekend and so um, I think moving towards a, a more diverse and, and mixed form of um, 
uh, of transport would mean that we would be less reliant on cars and a lot fewer people would need to own cars. We'll still have cars and some people are still going to need them, particularly in rural areas. But I think a lot of people living in cities would then be able to do without them. How do we get people away from the kind of love affair that they have with the automobile that it represents? And, and you still see it in automotive advertising that it represents some kind of freedom. Well, we, uh, automotive advertising is interesting because uh, you always see people driving on empty roads. There's never traffic. There's never <laughs> anything else. I mean, right. And I, mean, I remember once I was driving in Turkey and it was incredibly dramatic. You know, there's about to be a thunderstorm and I was driving on a coastal road and, and I was in some terrible car. You know, it was like a rental car. And it was it was. But anyway, I remember going over a hill and thinking, wow, this actually looks like a car ad. Right. This is the right. first time in my life I've driven in something that looks like a car ad. There's not another car on the road. And it's just this wonderful wide. Anyway, it's almost never like that. Um, and the answer to your question is how, you know, how how do you get people to fall out of love with that? Well, they already are. Um, so young people are qualifying to drive later or not at all. And um, and if you just look at the 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 fraction of people with driver's licenses in, um, you know, it, across the developed world, um, you know, it's it's way down from where it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So um, so there is a there is a sort of turning away from the car. There's quite a lot of evidence that we may have passed peak car uh, that, uh, you know, the number of cars per person in, in rich uh, countries is going down. Certainly, I mean, the number of miles driven every year in the US is going up, but it's going up more slowly than the population or the number of vehicles. So that suggests that each person and each vehicle on average is driving less. Um, so I think this is just a natural process. I think those of us who grew up with car culture and, you know, all the TV shows when I was young in the 70s, we watched a lot of TV shows from America. The cars were almost as prominent as the as the hero, you know, Knight Rider and Starsky sure. and Hutch, you know. You just think of them and you think of the cars. But, you know, I think young people today have moved on from that. The other thing is that the Chinese uh, have moved on from this as well. And, and uh, you know, if you look at the Chinese society, it's very inconvenient to own a car, but it's very convenient to travel in other ways using your smartphone. And so I think there is a shift underway. And, um, and you know, that's what's going to fix it. One of the things you point out is that even some of the ways that we think of as modern for traveling, things like ride hailing, really harken back to old forms of, of transportation as well. Yes, there are surprising um, historical precedents to, to ride hailing. Um, one of my favorites is that in the, uh, in the 1600s, when hackney carriages, so these are the first carriages that are kind of plying the streets of London, and you can just call one and ask it to take you somewhere for money. Um, when they first show up, the, uh, the people who, who had previously been the sort of taxi drivers of London, who were the, the watermen who rode people up and down the Thames, uh, were very they were outraged and they said you know this is terrible all of our all of our profit runs away on wheels as one of them put it um, and it's exactly the way that uh, taxi monopolies responded to the arrival of uber uh, in the in recent years uh, and then more recently than that in the in in 1914 1915 there was this big craze that started in los angeles and spread across the united states uh, that um, unemployed people who who were lucky enough to own a car and of course the model t had appeared and so there were there were people who in that recession had lost their jobs but did still own cars and so they started um, earning a bit of money on the side by just driving up and down streetcar routes and picking people up for a nickel and taking them to you know the downtown area or bringing them back again and sometimes they'd have three or four people in the car and these were jitneys and, the, and the so-called because the jitney is apparently i don't didn't know this but it's a it's slang for a nickel um and so uh you know but this was 
the uh, the streetcar companies went nuts and the taxi companies went nuts and said you can't do this it's unsafe uh who are these people you know you haven't licensed the drivers they haven't got proper insurance so all the things that people say about uber today and um but of course the more outraged they became and the more newspaper stories were written about this the more people in other cities thought hey that's a good idea we should try that too and so there was this big big craze and it all got shut down in about 18 months because um, the streetcar companies were were so worried about losing revenue that they lobbied and they were very, very big taxpayers in most cities. So they lobbied city governments to pass laws banning jitneys. So the whole thing got shut down. But it looks very, very similar to the way ride hailing works today. And I think, you know, the, the what we're really seeing in all of these cases is exploration of this space between private ownership of a car, which is very expensive, but very convenient because you can jump into it whenever you like. And then reliance on public transport, which is much cheaper, but is not necessarily going to run on the schedule that you want. And so um, this this space in between where you can you can have you know access to a car without having to own it and it can take you where you want when you want and that's a possibility you know it was with to some extent with jitneys and of course it's even more convenient with ride hailing today so um so that's why i think you know for more people living in cities owning a car is becoming increasingly onerous but uh but using alternatives to to own a car ownership is becoming easier because of smartphones and i think that's one of the reasons why young people are moving away from obsession with cars that we saw in the past the other thing that's happening kind of simultaneously here is that more and more people, particularly young people again, are moving to cities, that there is this movement towards urban environments. Yes, we're now at the point, I mean, it was about um, 10 years ago that the majority of the world's population lives in cities. And, um, you know, as I say, I'm not I'm not suggesting cars are going to go away completely. And I'm not saying we should all just stop using cars. I'm just saying we, you know, I think cities, life in cities would be better if we were less dependent on cars. And being less dependent on cars is much more feasible in cities, particularly dense cities, so Asian cities. Um, but, you know, uh, European, some some US cities, it is, you know, you can have uh, good public transport. And you can also have this layers of these other uh, sorts of transport on top, ride hailing, uh, bike lanes, e-bike rental, scooters, etc etc um and so that is i think you know that is a viable alternative for many people in cities already and the number of people that that's a viable alternative to car ownership for is going up um that's not to say that you know there are still going to be people in in rural or semi-rural areas who are going to need a car and it's you know that's that's going to continue to be the case and they all end up with electric cars and that's that's great you know that's that will reduce the impact of those vehicles a lot but i think one of the things we've seen in the past year with the changes that have been made into road layouts in many cities around the world during lockdowns is we've had a sort of glimpse of what a, a less car dependent future might look like and i think many people looked at it looked at it and thought yes actually i quite like this so um it would be interesting to see how much that sticks as we come out of the um, uh, of the pandemic in the in the months and years to come. The other thing that seems to be changing the landscape today, both urban and suburban, and, and and even in rural areas, is the interaction, the interface that seems to exist, and and more of it between cars and trucks. There 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 seem to be more trucks on the road today, and 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 really the interface, the interaction between cars and trucks. Is is more intense than it was previously. Oh right, okay. I mean, I, that, I have to say that's not something I've noticed in Britain. We've got a big problem in Britain that having left the European Union, we've got a big shortage of truck drivers, right. um, and there's a tr- shortage of truck drivers in the US as well. So, uh, and this is one of the areas where you know the autonomous car crowd. Uh, they're obviously having trouble getting their autonomous cars to perform as as well as they want them to. So a lot of them are now switching to focus on trucks because there is a shortage of truck drivers in the US. It's not a very pleasant job. You're away from uh, home a lot. And so one of the 
things that is being suggested is, well, maybe we use autonomous trucks on the long routes. And then at the end of the at the each end of the route, when you want to take the cars off the highway, sorry, the trucks off the highways and do the local delivery, that's maybe where you have the truck driver. And then the truck drivers don't have to be away from, you know, from where they live for very long or very far at all from where they live. Um, and then you can do these uh, long haul um, journeys uh, under autonomous control. Um, I have to say, I'm not, you know, there, there are two schools of thoughts on this. One is that truck uh, driving trucks autonomously on highways is much, much easier than driving cars in in dense cities. And I can see that that is the case. It's a much simpler environment. But the, the flip side is that trucks moving at speed are very much harder to stop than cars. And when you have something unpredictable in the middle of the road um, and the, the vision system isn't quite sure what it is, the potential to do damage is absolutely enormous because you've just got so much more momentum going on. And so I've heard both arguments from uh, from people in the autonomous vehicle community, some of whom say, we're going to do trucks first and then we'll do cars later. And other, uh, others who say, doing trucks first is crazy because they'll crash and kill people and then no one will want to go near this technology at all. So it'd be very interesting to see, you know, how that, how that plays out in the, uh, in the coming years. The other question is to what extent telecommuting and, and, and working from home, which we've all experienced in the past year and a half, to what extent that sticks? Yes, no, I think I think that's absolutely key as well. And um, yeah, we should remember that actually, even in the in the richest, most developed countries, so places like Norway or indeed the US, um, only about half the workforce can work remotely, work from home. Um, so there's an awful lot of people that can't. Now, people in our line of work, we're very lucky. Uh, you know, if you work in uh, in the media, you work in telecommunications, you work in tech, you work in finance, you can probably do your your job from a computer at home. But obviously, a lot of people can't do that. But anyway, for those people who can. Um, Yes, the appeal of working from home uh, has been uh, a lot of people have uh, have realized how great it can be not having to commute, getting that time back, spending more time with your family. Um, and so you know, the, the emerging consensus is that in future, a lot of people are going to be working from home two or three days a week. That will mean a lot less commuting, a lot less pollution, uh, a lot less you know angry people sitting in traffic, which which will be great. Um, uh, yeah, we have to we still have to work out the details of this because remote working is unfair or potentially unfair against uh, for some groups of people, for women, for younger employees who miss out on face-to-face opportunities to network. So we're going to have to make sure that um, the, the rules around uh, remote working um, you know, don't discriminate against people. But, but uh, yes, yeah, so I think ultimately that's a very good long-term um, you know, uh, development. Uh, and I think that will be the, the biggest thing that comes out of the pandemic, that, uh, that it makes us all realize that we didn't have to go to the office every day. Uh, and that will mean fewer cars on the road. And it will mean that some people say, actually, I don't need a car. Uh, and when I do go into the office, you know, a couple of days a week, I will use some alternative means of transport. So, yes, I think it's, um, you know, I think the long term effect is to accelerate this shift away from cars. Is there something out there that we're not seeing at this point? Is is there some change? Is there some technology that will come along? Is there something that will change this landscape that we can't quite see around the corner at right now? Well, a lot of people are devoting a lot of thought to this. Um, but, and obviously, this happened particularly with autonomous cars, because lots of claims were made about autonomous cars and how they would you know, make it. They would they would solve all the problems with cars and they would mean that you wouldn't need to own cars anymore because you could just summon them and, uh, and so on and so on. And, we, you know, to be honest, we need to take all that with a pinch of salt because of what happened with with cars in the 1890s. A lot of very similar claims were made and there are bound to be unexpected consequences to autonomous vehicles if we if we can indeed make them. Um, but I think the other one to watch is uh, is the flying cars. So they're basically the passenger drones and uh, they can take off and land quite quietly and vertically. So you don't need to build runways for them. And there are a lot of people looking at that. Um, 
And, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to go in one now, but that's how people felt about cars you know, 150 years ago. So um, so that's, uh, you know, maybe that will change. I suppose my point is that we need to just not bet, not put all our eggs in one basket, not bet on, on a single thing. Uh, and we did that with cars pretty much. We kind of rebuilt civilization around cars. And, and previously we'd done it with horses. So that's why I think the internet of motion and, and being able to stitch together lots of different forms of transport and in fact, different mixtures in different places. So, you know, if you live in Lagos in, um, in Nigeria, then you may prefer to travel around in, in, on a, uh, a motorbike taxi, a sort of motorbike Uber. That may be the, you know, the, the, the model for you. And it may be that flying cars work in, you know, in Dubai or, or whatever. So, so different, you know, different mixtures in different places. But I think what we need is the flexibility and not just um, reconfiguring uh, our civilization around one particular means of transport, because we really did bend the world out of shape around cars. An analogy I sometimes have for this is that um, is that fish don't know what water is, right? They swim around in water all day and they don't know the world any other way. So so as far as they're concerned, that's just normal. And they don't even know that it's there. And we're sort of like that with cars. Um, what I'm trying to do with this book is sort of point out the water to the fish, point out what the world looked like before cars and how many aspects of the modern world are the way they are because of cars and say, do we still need to go on doing it this way? Maybe we don't. And that really brings up the, the larger framework that we really get to think about the world and the design of our environments in entirely new ways, because so much of our designed environment really was evolved around cars and those needs. Exactly. And so there are other ways you can lay out cities. And if you go to a um, you go to an island, for example, which which has no cars on it, you, you, you see how things work or you go to a city, a medieval city where there are no cars in the center. Um, then, then you know, you some, suddenly get a different glimpse of, of of how things might work. Another example would be science fiction. So, in the movie Black Panther, there are no cars in Wakanda. So they're imagining this this Afro-futurist, techno-futurist utopia. And one of the really striking aspects for, for me is there aren't any cars. They they have avoided the mistake of having cars. Um, so so yes, I think there are other ways we can do things. And there are lots of experiments going on right now around the world with you know different ways to configure streets, walkable neighbourhoods, bike lanes bike rental, um, all sorts of things. And then mixing cars in, in in other ways. So using ride hailing to help people in transport deserts, transit deserts, get to transit stops. So you don't, you don't need to own a car if a car can take you to the to the station. Um, so I just think there's a, there's a lot more scope for experiment and, and uh, mixing different modes of transport than we've had in the last hundred years. And I, I, I hope that that's the direction we're going in. And do you sense that there's fear that goes along with this, that, that this is a major change, a major inflection point? As you talked about between the horse and the car, this is an equally dramatic change. And are people afraid of it? And what role does that play? Um, I'm not sure people are afraid of it. I mean, uh, there's a survey I cite in the book where people in several European cities were asked um, basically whether they, uh, I, I think it was car drivers, and they basically all said, even though they were car drivers, that they, they wished that there were fewer cars, not just so they could, you know, they could drive around, but they just thought that their cities would be better with fewer cars in them. Um, because this is the thing, you know, if, you, if you, you own a car and you live in a city, on the one hand, you're a motorist and you, you want things to be built around cars. But when you're not being a motorist, then you're, that you see the flip side of it, of, of how inconvenient it is that everything is built around cars. Um, so I think, I think there is a sort of recognition um, that, that 
we have gone too far down this road and we need to change and that there are ways of doing things differently. We are seeing people moving towards, you know, less car dependent lifestyles. There is a hardcore of people who just love the sound of a V8. And I can relate to that. And I understand yeah. that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I've, I love, I've loved cars since I was little and I go to, you know, car festivals like Goodwood and look at all the supercars. And, um, but what, what I would say to those people is, you know, drive an electric car because it'll, you know, it'll knock your socks off. It's so much acceleration. I love the fact that they're silent. Um, I mean, they're just. I, I, I find a, a driving electric car is is great, great fun. Um, so I think I think you can still have the love of <laughs> love of that. And also look at what happened with horses, right? Horses ended up being basically playthings for the rich. And I think we'll have uh, we'll have cars that you know places where you can go and drive cars on racetracks. Uh, that's going to stick around, and and people who want to scratch that itch will will still be able to do that. So I don't think it's fear. I think there's a, a general recognition that that things need to change, but um, and and a, and a recognition of the problems that cars have caused. It's just you know for many people it's difficult to live without a car. It's, it's, there's no other way to get to work. You have to have a car, and I think people feel sort of constrained by that, and and they would like to be uh, free not to own a car, but um but you know that's not an option for many people. So the the more we can make that an option, the better. Tom Standage, the book is a brief history of motion from the wheel to the car to what comes next tom i thank you so much for spending time with us thank you very much it's been great thank you